expected, but it's amazing. And, uh, you know, there was that unbelief in Tim Lewis took us through all of that. But the baby was going to be born. And, and they were told the specific purpose for which their son was going to be born. It was of God. And he was going uh, to have a special role in relation to preparing the way for Jesus to take his place in his uh, ministry. Luke 7 says, this is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. I mean, that's the status that Scripture uh, gives to him. And as Jesus was prophesied, so was John, Malachi 3. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way uh, before me. And of course we know from uh, not only the gospel, but from another gospel, Matthew, that um, he, he was something of an oddball character. He lived out in the wilderness of Judea. He was a recluse. His clothes were a camel's hair with a leather belt. He ate locusts and wild honey. And uh, the Bible says that he came in the power, the spirit and power of Elijah. He was the Elijah, the prophet of the New Testament, coming in that spirit and power of Elijah. The amazing thing was that although he lived and preached in the wilderness of Judea, the Bible tells us that people came out from Jerusalem into that barren place to hear him. And people came from around the whole of Judea. Don't ask me who his publicity agent was, but, uh, you know, it was something quite amazing for people to go to those extraordinary efforts to go and listen to a man who probably lived in a cave and in such a reclusive I just want to go through these verses this morning by way of uh, overview fashion and, and, and to try to glean uh, something that we can just bring together at the end for, for what this has to say uh, for us, I believe, uh, in today's uh, day and age. In verses 1 and 2, we see that John, after Jesus, had his specific place in history. Uh, on other occasions in the Gospel, Luke, of course, as he writes as a historian, he anchors people and events at specific known times in history. Uh, and we see right in, in the beginning of this chapter that he anchors the place of John the Baptist uh, for his place in history. Uh, and, and that fixing, you know, could be more comprehensive. The Roman Emperor was Tiberius Caesar. The Governor was Pontius Pilate. Three of the Tetrarchs, te tetrarch, sorry, were Herod, Philip, and Lysanias. And Jewish high priests, the Jewish high priests were Annas and Caiaphas. You know, it's like uh, when you take coordinates on a map or, or coordinates. 
that on a graph of some description. Uh, when you give to various points and you draw lines through them, it anchors the place. Uh, and I think Luke is anxious to do this because he wants us to appreciate your authenticity and your reality and the significance of the, set of the events that he is writing about. We talk very often, don't we, uh, when we get involved with the children about, about Bible stories. Um, our hairdresser friend uh, in, in Bristol, um, she's not a Christian, but she's forever asking us questions. You know, it's a bit like um, um, the seven lean years and the seven fat years back in the Old Testament of the dream of, uh, of Joseph. You know, we can go three or four visits every five or six weeks to have our hair cut. And, and, and soon won't say anything about it. But then all of a sudden, we'll have a flurry of three or four on the shop where an issue is raised. And we almost got it at one point to, to commit to a trial Bible reading. These Bible reading notices aren't important. Doing the daily Bible reading. And you can get sort of a 30-day trial of Scripture reading and things like that. And she probably got the day four and reading of it while trying to say it over the skin. But we got that far. <laughs> and she's watched Rico Tice of Christianity Explored. She's watched him on videos that we, we sent. But um, uh, she said that uh, of the way in which her grandmother, although her parents were not Christians, and she didn't have a specifically Christian upbringing, she speaks of the way in which her grandmother always led her Bible scripture. Uh, and that had kind of stayed with her all her life, to give us this sympathy towards uh, Christian things. Uh, and she finds that she just can't commit herself. She says her husband, who is doing very well in the field of business now, and, and making, making the money. And every time you go there, there's more cars and better cars and that sort of thing. Uh, and they've built themselves a house, and this is going to be it. But no, he's been putting on brand new cars, and he's on that sort of track, and he's quite opposed to Christianity. But Sue said it was the Bible story. And sometimes, you know, when you refer to them as that, that I think they're being quite misleading. <laughs> because sometimes people think that stories are like fairy tales, they're, they're kind of make believe. <laughs> and, and Luke is saying, no, I'm not writing a novel here. This is not fiction. This is reality. It's anchored in history. These events took place. They are for real. Then in verse 3, um, when we come to it, he went out into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And there we have, in these verses here, a, a, a summarizing of his ministry. He traveled, he preached, he baptized, his message was all about repentance and forgiveness of sins. I'll say them again. He traveled, he preached, he baptized, his message was all about repentance and forgiveness of sins. Don't these sort of kind of have echoes in them? Don't we begin to see 
father's years between the Old Testament and Jesus. And they were years in which, as far as we've been gauged, there had been no prophetic word from the Lord, as the Bible would often say. Nobody had been there to declare what God wanted to say to the nation. That's why I guess they're called the silent years. But a lot happened in those 400 years. Lots happened in 400 years. And they were years in which the Roman Empire had come into being and had taken over much of the then known world. And they'd even taken over, of course, uh, the land of God's people. They'd taken over Israel. Within Israel, they were years in which the worship of God had been turned into something that God never intended. It seems to resemble now more a commercial operation than a house of prayer. Remember how further on Jesus goes into the temple and, and, and he condemns all that goes on. It's just spending and money-making and corruption. And you've made a den, a den of thieves. And my house shall be called a house of prayer. And within that sort of climate that had grown up, can we imagine how the sinfulness of man, with no spirit-anointed people speaking to the people of the day, knowing that the heart of man is deceitful and above all things desperately wicked, says the Bible, can we see how that just spreads sinfulness and wrongdoing in the eyes of God? And so it would seem to be that at that time, as John the Baptist comes to prepare for the ministry of Jesus, all in all, Israel was a mess, and mankind was a mess. In every way, politically, morally, spiritually. But isn't it interesting that when you go into the letters, and Paul writes, you know, in the darkest of days, in every sense of the word, Paul writes that it was just the right time for Jesus to come. When we were sinners, it was then that Jesus came and died for us uh, upon the cross. But it was at just the right time that Jesus had come, and John was here now preparing uh, the way for his ministry. In verses 4 to 6, we see again how that John had to come in its fulfillment of prophecy to fulfill that specific role to which God had called him to. To prepare the way for the Lord. Verses taken out of the Old, Te uh, Old Testament. And, and through the preaching of John, uh, the spiritual antenna uh, that had not been deceiving for 400 years uh, in, in the land uh, a spiritual antenna of the people um, was, 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 was being awakened uh, to receive the message of the kingdom of God uh, that Jesus would bring. They were being uh, prepared. If you just go back into uh, uh, to, to 
where the birth um, uh, of John the Baptist uh, is, is common. It says there, prophetically, uh, to, to Elizabeth, to Zachariah, and he will go on, uh, this is uh, Luke 1, verse uh, 17, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit of his power from Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedience to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Then when we come to the verses 7 to 14, these verses seek to amplify and give us in greater detail but what was summarized in verse 3 about the nature of, of the ministry and preaching uh, of, of John the Baptist. We read through verses 7 to 10. We can see there that what John had to say included a message of judgment. To where the people were and how they stood before a righteous they were relying upon their religious heritage. That they were children of Abraham. And John has to tell them very definitely and very straight, look, <laughs> that doesn't wash with God. There's no way that you can rely upon any religion or any religious heritage um, to be able to count yourself righteous with God. And uh, then just carry on as though it doesn't matter living your own lives the way that you wanted them to do. There needed to be repentance because Jesus had been repenting. A complete about face turn in the hearts of the people uh, to God uh, once again. It's great to see that at the end of uh, those verses 7 to 10, it says then the people started to respond. How encouraging that must have been for John to the Baptist. Maybe living in the wilderness of Judea. Seems worth it. All the hardship, all the deprivation, all those all those hours in the presence of God, knowing what his ministry was to be, knowing what his message uh, was going to be. <coughs> Wearing what must have been itchy and uncomfortable camel's hair clothing. I wonder how many recipes he devised and wild honey. I mean, day after day, how many more times can you do it if you're able to spice it up? Perhaps it didn't have Indian, you know? And uh, you have jerk locum or, or something like that. But it must have been so encouraging where through being so faithful to his calling and what God intended for him, you know, suddenly, suddenly, he sees God at work. He sees reward for his efforts, fruit for his labors. The people started to respond, what should we do now? Echoes of the day of Pentecost, is it not? What then shall we do? Jesus says, repent and be baptized. And here is John uh, virtually saying the same, although his baptism was different. The repentance would have been the same. Repentance is repentance is repentance as far as God is concerned. The baptism was different, but we'll not uh, spend time on that one this morning. And then it's in verses 11 uh, through to 14 that we start to see the real foretaste 
of the ministry of Jesus in his teaching about the kingdom of God. Verse 11. As the people asked in verse 10, what should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, the man with two tunics should share with him who has none, and the one who has two should do the same. Lord of glory was 
But we know that as the Lord of glory, he's now in his rightful place. Do that work which he has completed. I've finished the work, Jesus said, which he gave me to do. And he is now exalted at the Father's right hand, Lord of all. John's Gospel, chapter 3, verse 30. John says there, He must become greater, and I must become less. And so, John spoke up to Jesus. And he recognized that he was just a voice in the wilderness. And he was pleased to be able to take the tail away into the background as Jesus came to the fore. He's the one who said, he's the Lamb of God who's come to take away, take away, not cover, take away to the sacrifice of himself, the sins of the world. Verse 18, John continued to preach the good news. But then in verses 19 and 20, we see that there was a fight that ultimately he had to for standing for God and for righteousness sake. He's been declared against Herod. And Herod had him put in prison. And we know ultimately uh, beheaded. He was heard for God uh, and shamefully left. Get ready. Now I suppose the message of John the Baptist was as he went around was, get ready, Jesus is coming. Get ready, Jesus is coming. I suppose as he moved around, he may well have coined the phrase, similar to that, I'm not suggesting for one moment he did, but that could be what he was saying all the time. Like Martin Luther King in his famous speech, I have a dream, I have a dream, I have a dream. But for John the Baptist, it was get ready, get ready, get ready. Jesus is coming. Hopefully by now, we have begun, if we've not done it already, to put two and two together in our minds this morning. Hopefully the penny has dropped. And if it hasn't, then perhaps it's beginning to drop. Whereas John came in his ministry to touch it, he had the things he did, the words he said, the preaching that he proclaimed, had echoed through foretastes of Jesus. Do we not see that as we stand at a completely different point in history where Jesus has fulfilled his ministry? He's done the work that his father has given him to do. And we live in a time of God's grace when people can still, by God's grace, mercy and love, be reconciled to God, to know forgiveness of sins, and have the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord, and all that he has done for us upon the cross. That's where we stand. But isn't our message too rather like John the Baptist? It's a different message. It's the gospel that Jesus came. But whereas John was saying, get ready, Jesus is coming. We stand in our day and age 
Failing back is the same thing. That is the gospel. Get ready. Jesus is coming. As believers here this morning, and by God's grace, I trust we all are, there is a sense in which we have a responsibility to get ready for Jesus is coming. Christians need to be prepared for Jesus coming again as they're speaking in the scriptures about how we need to do that, that if we're not going to be ashamed at his coming. But those that we know who are outside of Christ, the world at large, who have no place with Jesus at the moment, that's why we're here. Our message to them is get ready, Jesus is coming. And so John comes for us an example, a role model that we should follow. Relevant in our day and age, as John was relevant to his. We know there is a church, our strap line is making Jesus known. And uh, John helps us to appreciate how we can go about this and how we need to be about this. John said that in our day and age, so that people know and understand the gospel, that they too need to get ready because Jesus is coming. And for us to have a fresh understanding, <coughs> That when that day comes, the curtain will come down on the time of God's grace when there will be no further opportunity for people to have God's forgiveness and eternal life. We seem to forget that an awful lot. We think so much about what is possible now. <coughs> we lose sight, perhaps, of just how imminent the coming of Christ may be. And that when that coming does take place, that is the end of the day of God's grace. A great day for the church, <laughs> but really it's quite quite a tragic day for those who are outside of Christ. And so John the Baptist, to us this morning, I believe, stands for us as a great example that we should follow. And we need to be able to realize what it is that God has called us to be and to do as his witnesses in the world. And then to fulfill that call as we look and anticipate his coming again. May God empower us as we leave this morning to go out onto this new week to live with fresh sense of urgency in these things. That people might be blessed with us, that we might be encouraged like John was 